Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there. Have a kind of a special and interesting show today, I think. I did a real deep dive on a little known subject. Uh, but this is special because I want to take this opportunity to ask you guys uh, if you just subscribe to my YouTube channel. It's kind of an ego thing, but I'm sitting here at 4,800 subscribers and I get a little something. I get like I can tag people or I don't know. There's some kind of a thing like that on there. But just for my own ego, I want to go with the 5,000 mark if I can. So if you're not subscribed, you want to support the channel, even though you're an audio guy and you listen to all my uh, listen to audio podcasts, which that's uh, that's all I ever listen to. I like to listen to it on my phone. Uh, but get on YouTube on the Gangland Wire channel and subscribe. And then after you subscribe, then you know if you don't, unless you got notifications on, then you only get notified a little little thing on you uh, your phone on the um, screen of your phone. Little notification: Gangland Wire has a new video up. Of course, you may want to know that. You may like the video after you after you watch it. But a lot of you guys, and I know I'm I like I like to listen to them. But this story today is the four reasons that Gotti won his first big RICO trial, and really that's when he became known as a Teflon Don. In 1987, in the Eastern District of New York, they launched a racketeering case called the, the Della Croce prosecution because because Neil Della Croce was the underboss, and he was he was like the target, and and under Della Croce was the Gotti crew. So the Gotti, John Gotti, his brother Gene, and, and some other guys in the Gotti crew were part of this RICO racketeering prosecution case. And there was a, a former tax pro prosecutor named Diane Jackaloni, who was assigned the lead counsel. Uh, she was from the neighborhood, uh, from Ozone Park, kind of like Jenny from the hood. Well, she was Diane from the hood. Uh, she grew up in Queens and, and, uh, went to Our Lady of Wisdom Academy and, and walked by the Ravenite every once in a while, is my understanding. Uh, this will come back and, and later in this story about her as a young girl walking by the Ravenite. But she was one of the most experienced trial lawyers in the Eastern District. Now, the Eastern District, the Southern District was, ran by Rudy Giuliani at the time, and they were getting ready to go to trial on the commission case. They were working on the commission case in the Eastern District uh, uh, New York is not quite the glamour district. Uh, so, uh, but there was a new young prosecutor named John Gleason who was assigned to second chair of Mrs. Jackaloni. Uh, a little bit about Gleason. He, uh, he, he had been a lawyer for a uh, a firm called Kravath, which was a successful private firm in New York. He had applied to the Southern District because they were the big duck under Giuliani, but Giuliani rejected him. He then applied for the Eastern District, and the, the uh, U.S. attorney in the Eastern District was Raymond Deary, who hired him. And this is the same Raymond Deary and consequently coincidence of all coincidences. He's a, he's a special master in the current Mar-a-Lago case. Now, uh, in Gleason and I took every, most of my details from Gleason's book. He wrote one called The Gotti Wars, Taking Down America's Most Notorious Mobster. And I'll have links to that. And, and you see, uh, the, I'll have an image of the, the uh, cover of it on the uh, video here. Now, in that book, Gleason's kind of an interesting guy, and he tells about his very first appearance as a new federal prosecutor in the Eastern District. And he, he's assigned just a simple little bond hearing for a woman who had forged a $300 money order. Uh, I don't even know why that was a federal case and then federal court, but it was. And 
And so he doesn't know what he's doing. You know, when you're new on the job, you don't know what you're doing, right? <laughs> and so he uh, he asked another assistant U.S. attorney, he said, well, how much bond should I ask for? And the guy said, eh, just ask for $20,000. He didn't know that. And he goes back up in front, goes up in front to the judge and called his case. Her public defender probably asked for being released on her own recognizance. And and uh, judge looks at Gleason, says, you know, counselor. And he says, well, I want $20,000 bond. The judge heard that and he kind of does a double take. And he says, loudly, he says, this is a $300 forgery. And you tell me you want a $20,000 bond on this lady. And, and Gleason says that he, he said, I really didn't know what to say. I'd never, you know, I didn't have any, hardly any courtroom experience. He says, I turned around, pointed back at that assistant U.S. attorney and said, I, I don't, that guy back there told me to ask for $20,000. <laughs> and the judge says again loudly, get me somebody up here who knows what they're doing. And, you know, and he released her on her own recognizance, which is pretty much what you'll do in a case like that. So a few months after he got into the U.S. Attorney's Office, Jack Loney signed him just to to that case, and and she was a lead trial, and he was going to second chair it, and he started answering different defense motions and reviewing all FBI reports and wiretap transcripts transcripts in the uh, what they call the Della De Croce prosecution, and so he lets you know the kind of the timeline of the events here during this time. It's a really important time in, in New York City and prosecution uh, of the mob in New York City, and especially the Gambino family, but all five families, because uh, February 25th, 1985, the commission trial starts, and that's under Rudy Giuliani and against the bosses of the five families in the Southern District. Uh, the Gambino boss, Paul Castellano, and under boss... Neil Del Croce are defendants in that trial too. Uh, March 28, 1985, just a month later, poor old Grella Croce, he gets prosecuted along with John Gotti and Gene Gotti and the Gotti crew on a RICO prosecution. And, and they'll be, they'll be defendants in that one. Eight months later, December 2nd, 1985, Della Croce dies of natural causes. December 5th, just a few days later, the, uh, Della Croce wake, is held and Paul Castellano doesn't show up. Now, God, he uses this as kind of an excuse, you know, saying he disrespected uh, uh, the underboss and, you know, who knows, there was a lot more at play. I think we don't need to go into uh, that part of the story. We know a lot. I, I put out a story not too long ago about why God, he felt he needed to kill, kill Castellano and it wasn't because he didn't go to that wake. December 16th, what, uh, nine days, uh, Five, uh, 11 days after the Della Croce wake, Gotti sits on the street with Sammy the Bull and watches several of his underlings murder Castellano as he enters Spark Steakhouse on the street. You know, one of the most famous mob hits of modern times. Maybe the last mob hit. I'm not sure. The Della Croce case in the Eastern, in Eastern District, the Della Croce case in the Eastern District now becomes the Gotti case as Gotti Starts off as like part of a trio that's going to oversee the Gambino family, but he is, for all intents and purposes, the new boss of the Gambino crime family. Now, this prosecution will center around Gotti's Bergen Hunt and Fish Club in Queens. Uh, along with Gotti, they had Gene, Gene Gotti, uh, John Cornelia, 
uh, Delacroce's son, Armand, who everybody called Buddy. And there's another non-Italian named Willie Boy Johnson. There was a couple, three other guys that were part of a, another family, and Lenny DiMaria and Mickey Carozo. They had a crew over in the Carnese section of Brooklyn. I've struggled with that word all the time. So that kind of sets the scene. Um, the first mistake. What was the first mistake that they made? Well, the first mistake was Willie Boy Johnson. I don't know if you know, you guys know about whatever happened with Willie Boy Johnson. He was, he was, I think he was part in American Indian. He was not Italian. Uh, I mean, maybe his mother was, I'm not sure, but it didn't seem like he was Italian at all. He was never made, a made guy and he was pretty important. He'd been a long time Gotti associate, had known him since he was a young man. He was known to be a good owner for Gotti and Della Croce too, and for the family. Uh, Jack Loney wanted to turn Willie Boy because he she knew him as 5558TE. A top echelon informant is what that TE means. And, and so uh, it turns out Willie Boy had gone to prison back in the 1960s and nobody took care of his family in any manner, even though he'd always kicked up religiously to Della Croce and Gotti. Miss Jack Loney was pretty sure she could make him on the murder of a man named Tony Plate. Uh, she believed that Della Croce had ordered Willie Boy to do this murder down in Florida while he stayed in New York. Uh, Bureau agents had gone to Ms. Jacqueloni and asked that Willie Boy be removed from the indictment or at least allowed to plead to the murder and get a, a lighter sentence and maybe deal with him on down the road so they could protect him. And there was another informant, top echelon informant that, that they wanted to protect too. And she wouldn't protect, she wouldn't protect either one of them. Mr. Gleason reports in his book that she replied that informants cannot be allowed to get away with murder. And she refused to deal. Now, as we know, Sammy the Bull was allowed to get away with a lot of murders. And there's been a lot of informants been allowed to basically get away with murder, you know, maybe do a five year or six year bit. They may make them do a little time, but but it's not, you know, it's not huge time for the crimes that they've done. But the agents, they were hamstrung. You know, there was nothing else they could do. But Jack Loney brings Willie Boy in for an interview. And, and what do you think he's going to do? I mean, uh, offers him witness protection. And, you know, here's what he said. John Gotti's my friend. Uh, here's something kind of interesting. I'm, I'm going to read off the exact words that, that Gleason's book had that, that he probably got from a transcript. Ms. Jack Loney said, well, Mr. Johnson, the fact that you've been an FBI informant since 1966 will be made public in this case. He said, you can't do that. My whole family will be slaughtered. We're prepared to protect you. Willie Boy says, I don't really want your protection. Why are you doing this to me? I was promised nobody would ever know and nobody would ever tell about this. Now you're, now you're going to tell John? I never met you before. How could this happen? You can't do this to me. I'm going to be killed. My whole family's going to be killed. So, Ms. Jacqueline, I've been in this position. You know, here's your choices, dude. You know, you can cooperate. Your family goes into witness protection, and he would too. Or you could not cooperate. And I'll just tell the judge that you can be of help. And I want you, I want you to testify and I want you to be held without bail in solitary confinement to protect your life. And she said, you know, the Gotti crew will try to get you killed in jail. And if they can't get you killed in jail, as soon as you get out, you know, they're going to try to kill you on the streets. Now, choice number two, you know, door number two, you stay in the hole for a year. Then we try the case. 
And if you get convicted, they're going to get life for murdering, murdering Tony Plate. And then you'll have to spend the rest of your life in the hole for your own protection because they'll always be looking to kill you even in prison because it's coming out in court that you've been talking. But if you somehow beat your own case, your the murder case for Tony Plate, John Gotti have you killed the moment you hit the street, even if he's away the rest of his life. So you only got one choice. You know, do a little time. We'll relocate you and your family. And, you know, or you can go back to go to trial. Plead not guilty. Don't help us. And you'll do life in the hole more than likely and or get killed. Gleason writes, Willie Boyd didn't even hesitate when he said softly, I will never never testify against John Gotti. He's my friend. You can just take me back downstairs now. At a subsequent bail hearing, all the defendants and their lawyers are pleading for bail or asking for some kind of bail. As Jack Loney, in regards to Mr. Johnson, asked for no bail and said, the reason is, Your Honor, Mr. Johnson's been an informant for the Federal Bureau of Investigations for a period of over 15 years. I can't even imagine that uh, the silence was deafening. You know, how do you have a deafening silence? But I, I, a hush fell over the courtroom. I'd love to see it inside of Gotti's head whenever that came out and the rest of those guys, too, especially John Gotti's. Willie Boy jumps up and says, you know, not true, Your Honor. I'm not an informant. I've talked to agents and everything, but I'm not an informant. Judge ends up saying, oh, Mr. Johnson, I'm going to have you detained, and uh, I'm afraid that you'll run from the jurisdiction if I release you. Well, needless to say, there was a lot of unhappy FBI agents. Boy, I know Bill Owsley had something like this happen to him with a, a U.S. attorney up in Minnesota, and, and uh, he was he's still living. I'd bring that up to him once in a while, and, and he'll, just, he'll just go off on a tirade, and I mean— Especially if somebody really helped you a lot. And, uh, you know, I mean, big time help, not just bullshit little help. That's so, sometimes you get these guys that give you little things here and there and throw away, throw a little fish to you. But, you know, these guys that really give you big help, you know, you, you got to try to do something for them. So, you know, to prosecute RICO cases, the government has to have what they call predicate acts. And that's all these other crimes that some of these people have done. And then they have to prove that these people did these crimes, were part of an organization that got benefits from the acts that they did, like sports gambling or loan sharking. Say you got a sports gambling, loan sharking conviction, or you get one in the process of this trial, this RICO trial. And then you need a storyteller to say, you know, then the Gambino crime family or Della Croce and Gotti got money out of this crime. So most of these predicate act cases, uh, loan sharking and gambling and murder, whatever, they were FBI cases. And and these agents will never really forgive Diane Jackaloni for exposing their top echelon informants. It's hard to believe, but we'll talk a little more about this. But, you know, taking this risk that she could end up forcing Willie Boy Johnson to testify against Gotti. She made a tactical error and, and also let the defendants know a lot more about their case, what, what the government knew about their case and what they may be presenting in the future, because now they know what Willie Boy knows. And so what he's probably telling them uh, huge error, I think, to to try to to expose him in order to try to make your case because it didn't work. I guess it was, you know, shooting, shooting dice. Sometimes you hit a seven, sometimes it's snake eyes. 
Second mistake was with the storytellers. They, there was a lot of uh, the, the, the lawyers after this case, Bruce Cutler and uh, Barry Slotnick, and I can't remember the other guy's name. <clears throat> they really uh, went on and on with the media about how horrible, what horrible people their witnesses were. Uh, was what the jury just not believing the witnesses that that testified against? Absolutely, and and rejecting, regurgitating the kind of thing that they've seen over and over again. Paid witnesses, witnesses who've lied in the past, witnesses who've gotten new identities, witnesses who've sold drugs, witnesses who've killed people. They've had it, and I think this may be a swing in the right direction. I'm very pleased about that. What happened, Mr. Gotti? So, like I said, in the RICO case, you need storytellers. You got to have people to say, "Yeah, there's a mafia. Yeah, these people are part of a Gambino crime family. Yeah, Della Croce was the underboss, and..." Gotti was a capo of a crew under Della Croce. You got to get that organization out. Then you have to say, yeah, at times I and others that I know acted under their orders and they got a tribute for my illegal earnings. So you got to get that out in front of a jury in order to prove Rico. So they had a set of degenerate characters. And, you know, we don't you don't get witnesses, as they say, you don't get witnesses from Sunday school. Uh, there's no doubt about that. At least not witnesses in these kind of cases. Now, interesting, a guy I just talked to about coming on the show, I've, I've, I've got him recorded. I'm going to get him on. I'm going to get him on again because uh, he's doing a thing with uh, Netflix and, and they're going to do another big show about this time in Manhattan, only from the criminal standpoint. The last one, Fear City, was from the police law enforcement standpoint. If you notice, this is going to be from the mob guys view. There's so many mob guys that have come in. And yeah, his name is Sal Polisi. He was an associate that hung around the Bergen Vision Hunt Club a lot. And he told me Diane Giacalone really wanted him just to come in and talk about the goings on inside the club. He was not really directly involved with any of this. Really kind of had secondhand information. Now, he had turned informant and already gone to witness protection. And he testified against a corrupt New York state judge. He had bribed from a New York, from a narcotics case that he had but he was he's a colorful character as you'll hear when you when i get him on the show and he's quite a storyteller one thing about him that was killing him to use him as a witness and he didn't have any direct information was he had already gained a reputation as being crazy and he'd used an insanity defense in a 1974 case he also had feigned insanity to the veterans administration and collected over three hundred thousand dollars over the past 20 years Hope he didn't say he had PTSD and get a lot of money. There's probably people that do that more than likely. I got a buddy that I don't know. He claims he's got PTSD and he's got a full pension from, you know, full disability from the military. Maybe he does. I don't know. Who am I to say? But at the time, Sal Polisi was also writing a book and he taped hundreds of hours of his memories. Well, the defense were able to get hold of these recorded conversations, and they really did not sound good as far as who he was and what he was. And they also contained a lot of racist language. He dropped the N-word a lot, which, you know, and, and from guy to guy, and especially in that world, you do. But on the streets, you know, you get somebody in to discredit him and get somebody to say, yeah, he's known as Sally Ubots or Crazy Sally. Uh, you know, I thought uh, crazy was Pazza or Pazzo, but... Uh, what I read in, in Gleason's book was Sally Ubots. So the defense was pretty 
was able to pretty easily discredit Polisi. And the next one, Matt Trainer, he was a he was a real mistake for many reasons. Ah, that guy was a piece of work. The prosecution didn't even use him. He was so bad. But the prosecution had to reveal that they had interviewed him and tried to use him. And so when they learned about it, they have an investigator go out and talk to Trainer, and then they realize they could use him to discredit the prosecutors. Trainer will, on the stand, they'll call him on the stand. He'll claim that Diane Jackie tried to bribe him by saying that she'd put money in his commissary accounts and get him other little goodies because he was in jail at the time. And he even, he even claimed that she gave him some of her panties to help him relieve himself sexually in jail. He said that Diane Jackaloni, and he called her Mama Jackaloni, and for some reason the judge allowed it, but he always called her that on the stand. And she told him, according to Trainer, that he would, she would do anything to get the Gotti crew, because when she was a young girl, she often had to walk past the Bergen Fish and Hunt Club, and they made crude and lewd remarks to her and about her, which we know she did grow up in that neighborhood. He also said John Gleason's wife was a nurse. She he learned a little bit about Gleason and said she was a nurse and she had got provided Gleason Tylenol 3 with codeine to get to him in the jail in exchange for perjured testimony. And the defense had even subpoenaed Ms. Gleason's personnel file from the hospital to see if she had ever been in any kind of trouble for in regards to her handling of narcotics. Oh, this Gleason, oh man, he was, he was just livid. He was, uh, and can you imagine, you know, that bringing your wife into this deal, but he, he was beside himself. Now, one of the murders that they're going to use was the murder of Jimmy McBratney. Now, Gotti had done that murder with Angelo Ruggiero and McBratney was a big Irish guy who with some other guys had convicted, had, had kidnapped, actually kidnapped uh, Carlo Gambino's nephew, I believe. I think they'd kidnapped other Gambino family people and held them for ransom. And, and they'd accidentally or somehow they killed uh, Carlo Gambino's nephew in the midst of one of these kidnappings. He had ordered Del Croce to make sure it got taken care of, that McBratney got taken care of. And and he, of course, handed it down to Gotti, and Gotti and, and Ruggiero did it, and, and they got caught, and they copped a plea. Now, they'd obviously, uh, they know, I know they used Roy Cohen. I don't know exactly how, but they used Roy Cohen to get some kind of a sweet deal. They did a three-year bit for murdering McBratney. They probably claimed some kind of self-defense or something. I don't know. So one of the Irishmen who hung around and did these kidnappings with McBratney was a guy named Eddie Maloney. And he'd come into the government for protection after he was shot in the head several times in the cozy corner of bar in, the, in Queens. And it was run by a member of uh, Gotti's crew. And this was, you know, because he was part of this kidnapping thing, they were trying to kill him for that too. And Gleason reports that he got him on the stand and and he asked him about this and how you know he they tried to kill him <laughs> and he said yeah he said uh, well where'd they shoot you he said well right in the head and, and he said well how'd you survive that and he said well it only went in about this far <laughs> and gleason said he was he was really slow and difficult to prepare and 
and really had hardly anything that was admissible against these defendants. Plus, he just looked like, like, what are you doing with this guy? You know, and um, and another guy, James Cardinale, uh, he traded off a murder for a manslaughter plea. And he could only testify that he'd been a regular at the Bergen Hunt and Fish Club for several years. And and he started claiming things like he said, well, God, he told me that he killed the kidnapper of Manny Gambino, which he did. And he took a, you know, he took a guilty plea on that. Uh, he said that Willie Boy Johnson, this is how he made the case on Willie Boy Johnson. He he had said that he'd killed this Tony Plate. He said John Carnelia had confessed that he'd done a murder. Uh, so, you know, there was murder charges that that he's kind of he's testifying that, yeah, they're talking about these murders. They did these. They admitted doing these murders. But his word was totally unsubstantiated. And when they started attacking him on the stand, they said, you know, well, he, you know, show me which surveillance report or report or photo that he's in. He was just a nothing. Gotti would say he was just a what do you say? He was just a fucking coffee boy in, in the club and kind of a periphery hanger on her. And they painted him as that. They were able to paint him as that. And, and I believe Gleason believes that the jury would not believe that he was important enough for anybody to discuss murders with a third mistake. And we talked, we we've alluded to this. They, uh, Ms. Jackaloni, primarily Ms. Jackaloni Gleason didn't have anything to do with this. You know, he's a guy that prosecuted Gotti and won the case in the second trial. But she alienated law enforcement. There's one case they had a retired NYPD detective named Vic Ruggiero, and he'd help the Bergen wiretaps and started calling him and getting ready for trial, and, and he wouldn't return their call. And it turns out that when he was on the stand before during some preliminary hearings, one of Gotti's lawyer, lawyers addressed him as Mr. rather than detective. Well, he was retired, but he got scared, and they couldn't. They couldn't bring him back around. He was scared, and, and he believed that was a signal letting him know that he was no longer protected as a cop. Jack Loney went to the judge for a subpoena to force him to testify, and the judge says, well, you know how you know how unusual this is? And he says, you really need to arrest a former NYPD detective in order to get him to testify about an investigation he conducted? He said, what's wrong with this case? <laughs> and uh, and and there was there was a lot of little things wrong with this case. It probably had overstretched by the government, but they wanted they wanted these they wanted these prosecutions bad. Of course, the exposure of Willie Boy Johnson as a top echelon informant that really alienated him. I mean, that really alienated him. And the FBI wouldn't even return their calls, and they wouldn't help the prosecution in any matter. Uh, and before the trial was over, it got even worse. Lots of times, an FBI agent will. Will sit there and, and help second chair the help sit up there with the uh, with the prosecutor if they don't have a uh, another lawyer to second chair it because most FBI agents a lot of them awful lot of them are lawyers too, but for example they need an FBI agent to testify at a hearing that they they never authorized Willie Boy Johnson or there was another top echelon informant witness they never authorized them to commit a criminal acts during the time. They were feeding the FBI information as top echelon informants. So after many calls, they finally got one agent to testify. But, you know, then on cross-examination, somehow, uh, and this is how bad it got, somebody within the FBI had given the defense inside information about this agent that, that testified. They never 
given them permission to do criminal acts. And he had once been demoted for improperly dis- disseminating, properly disseminating confidential information provided by an informant. So, you know, I mean, that just blows you up. That just blows you right out of the water there. I mean, that, that just really discredits you as any kind of a witness that would be claiming anything about informants. And, you know, so they, they said, of course, you know, this guy's lying. Uh, you know, when, when he testifies that he hadn't told the informers to commit crime. And I think many times it's pretty, I think people do believe that, that agents and even policemen will, will, will tell people to commit crimes and then tell them they'll cover for them. And, you know, it's, it's never, it, it's always understood that, you know, I always just tell guys that, you know, if I know you're doing stuff, if you get caught, you know, I'll do what I can, but I don't want to know anything about it. And and you're a big boy, but and and I wish you wouldn't do it, but I can't control you. So that's you know, what are you gonna do? Fourth mistake, fourth and final mistake. I tell you what, jury selection. I don't know if you know much about what happened with the jury on this, but and and it's a it's weird that uh, that this will be a mistake because it looked like they were doing the right thing. This prosecution had two jury selections. The first one was was going to be an open jury selection, and that means that during voir dire, that's when they question the jurors, the prospective jurors, the defense will be given a list of the prospective jurors and their addresses, and and they'll be able to learn a lot about the jurors, usually because that's what you want to know about the jurors. If you're selecting a jury, you want to find out where they live and and maybe go back and even check, you know, as much as you can check their background. As the jury selection progressed, they realized that these people were petrified of testifying in this trial, especially of Gotti. It said, said several of the women and the men even burst into tears just as the questioning starts of Dyer started. So go figure. I don't know. I don't think I'd burst into tears, but here's what they did do. And I think this was the biggest tip off. They'd give a quick look over at Gotti before they answered any questions. So <laughs> is he listening? Is he watching? <laughs> and and you know, the body language gives you away every time. So when they saw that was going on, they convinced the judge to suspend the election process and start with a whole new panel. And this time the jury was going to be anonymous. And they started with a huge panel, I think like 500 people. And it took five weeks to get a jury together. And they were only known by their number. And that means both the prosecution and the defense didn't know their name or their address or anything else about them. They were given a questionnaire that contained a lot of the usual board dire questions. Have you ever been a witness? Do you know any of the defendants or the prosecutors? Do you have any con- connection to law enforcement? Have you ever been questioned by the FBI? Uh, have you ever been a, de- a defendant? Have you ever been convicted of a crime? Have you ever been accused of a crime? Uh, do you know anything about this case? Do you know anything about, you know, names, the names of the lawyers and the prosecutors and, and the, uh, the defendants? Do you know any of these people? Any of the other witnesses? Probably give them a list of most of the other witnesses. Do you know any of these people? I had some comic relief during this. They had one woman when, when she was, answered the question about if she's ever testified to court before. She said, yes. So the judge gets her in and then says, well, what about this case? What'd you testify about? And she said, well, it was about the murder of my husband. The judge says, well, I'm sorry. It must've been a very horrible experience for you. 
But how, how were you a witness? What did you see him being murdered? Or why were you a witness? She said, because I'm the one that did it. <laughs> they let her go. Both sides agreed. You know, we, we don't want her as a witness. Uh, a, but with all these precautions, a jury member slipped through unnoticed. A man named George Pape became jury. A, a man named George Pape became juror number 11. <laughs> Uh, in hindsight, had everybody known the names of the jurors and something about them, their address, juror 11 probably would have been exposed because he told several lies during the questioning and the the, uh, the form and everything and, and any follow-up questions they might have. For example, he claimed he had never testified in a trial before. In fact, he testified for a particular professional criminal several times. He owned a business in partnership with this same man who was well-known by these prosecutors. Uh, he had visited this guy in prison 40 times, was on the prison registration. He'd signed the guy's papers for his naturalization process. He was best man at this guy's wedding. But since neither the defense nor the prosecution knew the names in a, of this any of any of the jurors, they were all anonymous, they couldn't check the background of Mr. Pape. And, of course, during deliberations, he vociferously argued for not guilty verdicts for the defendants. So how did he how did this come out? Uh, well, Sammy the Bull, good old sound, our friend Sammy the Bull Gravano, our competition out there in the YouTube channel. Now, he has a good channel. I tell you what, the guy can tell a story. But I'm not going to start calling people bro. <laughs> hey, bro. That's right, bro. Anyhow, uh he told them, he told the agents that he had paid $60,000 to a Serbian criminal who was connected to the Westy gang in Manhattan. Well, it sounds kind of strange, but I tell you, this guy, when I start, I'm going to tell you a little bit about this guy. Uh, he's, he, it's truth is stranger than fiction many times. Uh, the agent told Gleason, this is how this went down, said when they started debriefing Sammy's, I guess they had, there's a victory party at the Ravenite after this not guilty verdict or these not guilty verdicts for Gotti, Gene Gotti and, and all of them. And, and at the party, it seems there are a lot of people congratulating Sammy about the victory. And he said, well, they said, well, why is that? Sammy says, simple, bro. I fixed it. Gleason writes in his book that he remembered a call after the trial, after the not guilty verdict came in. A New York detective who had testified called him and he said, juror number 11, they called him the oil terminal guy because he worked at an oil terminal. They figured that out somehow. Called him and wanted to talk. And detective said, I, I'm going to go out and talk to him. Gleason said, okay, tell me what he's got to say. And detective met with juror number 11 and he was drunk, drunker than hell. And he said he didn't really say anything that made any sense. He didn't know what he wanted. It turns out Sammy the Bull relates this story. There's a Serbian criminal named Bosco Radonovic. And he was one of those people that just, his story is something else. He had been a Serbian terrorist during the Troubles over there, if you remember the kind of a little war. We got involved, sent some planes over there a few back in the, what, the early 80s. This is the middle to later 80s. And he'd come over to the United States. He'd hooked up with Gotti somehow, who had put him in charge of the Westies after Jimmy Coonan went to prison. Now, if you know, if you don't know, the Westies is an Irish gang. Goes clear back to Oni Madden and, and Jimmy Coonan and Mickey Featherstone went on and they were they were really violent. And they had a deal with the Gambinos and 
and, and to do crime under the auspices of the Gambinos. And of course, they fenced everything through them and, and probably kicked a little tribute to them. And, and, uh, they were involved in the construction rackets and, and Bosco, his name was mentioned many times in Ravenite and, and it's being important in the construction rackets that the Gambino crime family had. You know, the construction rackets, Sammy the Bull was pouring all the concrete in Manhattan and, and, uh, you know, they owned the unions there and, and you really had to, had to deal with the Gambinos in order to get buildings built. I think everybody had to, to deal with the Gambino, Gambinos if you were going to do any construction in Manhattan. They knew Bosco was closely connected to them in, in, in that manner. And so it didn't take really great detective work to check into juror number 11's background and find that he knew Bosco well, had visited him in jail many times, had testified for him, had signed his naturalization papers, was the best man at his wedding, and on and on. And, and he, he would have been knocked out before any of that happened because they would have caught him lying on the uh, uh, jury questionnaire, the early question, because believe me, uh, these guys, uh, if you got their names and addresses, you're going to go run them through the system and find out you know, the intelligence system, they're going to have, his name was George Pape, by the way, if I didn't say that before, you're going to have Pape's name down there as his license plate showing up or somehow showing up next to this Bosco Radonovich. And, and Radonovich was well known to be uh, an Agati associate. So that's uh, that was a mistake they made was asking for that anonymous jury. The government will end up charging George Pape, convicting for taking a 60000 dollar bribe to fix that verdict. Now, Gravano never met Pape. He he stayed uh, back from this. He only gave the money and what he said, three $20,000 installments to Bosco to get this fixed. So that's the four mistakes that the government made in the first Gotti trial that gave him the moniker of the Teflon Don. I hope you like this story. I appreciate all y'all. Don't forget, as I said before, to subscribe and uh, or uh, like and subscribe and share and tell your friends about the YouTube channel or the and the audio channel if you're on the audio channel uh, don't forget I uh, I ride motorcycles and and boy we just had a really bad one some of these guys in the sport bikes that get together and you've seen them they they stunt and they they ride about a thousand miles an hour I don't ride with them but I like to watch their Facebook page and and just yesterday they had one of their guys killed racing with another guy within a group that a big group of 20 and and everybody scattered like a cup of quail after these two motorcycles went down and, and one of them was killed. They were berating each other on Facebook for leaving the scene. <laughs> said somebody said, you know, cops don't care about your improper license or whether you get a license plate on it or you got insurance on your bike or not. When they're dealing with a injury accident like that, you know, don't leave your buddies stranded laying on the highway, but they scattered like quail. So if you're a veteran, you got a problem with PTSD, be sure and go to the Veterans Administration website, get that hotline number, give them a call. Thanks a lot, folks.